and I feel torn about what to talk about because we could either talk about same-sex attraction and gender discordance from the angle of how to interact with individual people, or we could talk about it from the angle of how to engage with the culture at large. What do you think we should do? I mean, we could just do both. Both it is. Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are in for the first of a two-part interview with Anna Carter, the co-founder of Eden Invitation. Anna, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here, Andrew. For those who may not be familiar with Eden Invitation, can you tell us a little bit about the background and your uh, current work? Absolutely. Eden Invitation is a movement for young adult Catholics and Christians um, who experience same-sex desires, gender discordance, uh, and want to live a life of discipleship. What prompted you and uh, your co-founder, Shannon, to uh, start Eden Invitation? You know, I, I think for both of us, it, it, a lot of it just has to do with really like looking out at the world and seeing where gaps are and discerning how you're called to move into that space. I think both of our discernments were personal, but for me, it really came down to just kind of this recognition that I wasn't seeing a lot of witnesses out there in the world. Um, I come from a background, and so does Shannon as well, a very uh, evangelistic ministries that were really testimonial driven. And just the power of witness, right? In uh, Evangelion Nunciandi 41, Pope Paul VI says that modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he listens to teachers, it's because they're witnesses. And just really recognize kind of a, a, a lack of that witness out there in the church today, out there in the world. So it was a bit of that and also just wanting to provide opportunities for community, right? Both, again, coming from places that really encourage, you know, Christian brotherhood, Christian sisterhood, good, healthy friendships, and wanting to provide those opportunities that maybe aren't as obvious for those with LGBTQ experiences in the church. And how many people are currently involved in Eden Invitation? Yes, yeah, so we have an online community, and that's probably the best litmus test. We're probably at 250, approaching 300 on our online community. And then obviously more than that have maybe reached out, but for whatever reason, haven't done something with us yet. Because in sure. order to get into the online community, we do have people participate in something, right? Let's get to know you, like get exposed to our culture. We, we just didn't want to have a, we don't want to have a culture of, oh, hey, this is your deal. Sign up for this message board, right? We want to yeah. be able to promote just relationship and real community. In your ministry, which has been going on for uh, four years now, what are some commonalities or maybe some differences that you've observed when working with those who experience same-sex attraction versus those who experience gender discordance? Yeah, I, I think it's good to recognize that there's distinctions, right? I mean, obviously, as human beings, wherever we find ourselves, I think there's those common just existential questions that all of us face in different ways, right? About God's plan for our lives and what it means to love and be loved, how are we going to be utilizing our gifts, no matter who we are? Those are big questions. And I think if you experience same-sex desires, you really come up against those questions, uh, particularly, I think, in relationship, right, with the other. So what does love look like for me? What does covenantal commitment <laughs> look like for me in my life? How is, yeah, God calling me into relationship and self-gift? What does that look like in relation to the other? And I think when it comes to wrestling with one's biological sex, a lot of those, those questions are still there because we're human beings. Um, but I think the more pressing ones are, what does it mean to even be human, right? What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to 
live in this body that I've received? Uh, what is masculinity and femininity, right? All of these, again, are human questions. But I think when you're wrestling with attraction to the same sex, when you're wrestling with disconnect with your biological sex, there's certain questions that get pushed on a little harder. Yeah, that makes sense. So are there areas of overlap at all? Or is it really a mistake in any setting to lump in those two groups of people? I mean, I don't think it's a mistake in that I think there's the commonalities, like I mentioned, of just, again, some of those basic existential questions that are still there by nature being human. I also think culturally speaking, you know, in the secular LGBTQ space, they often get lumped together. But I think what that also means then is you probably have similar experiences of feeling confused or feeling potentially ostracized. Um, There's a commonality of a lack of robust pastoral resources, even within the church. And so you might feel underserved, right? So there's some areas of similarity, but obviously what somebody is going through is distinct. And so you don't want to make some sort of assumption that, oh, everybody experiencing same-sex desires must be wrestling with their biological sex or people wrestling with their biological sex are really gay or something. Like we've had people in our community that have had people tell them that, right? So you you definitely need to make distinctions. These are not the same experience. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. You're speaking my language talking about distinctions, by the way. So that, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. That must be a tricky one when people are being told that they had previously identified as part of one group, but really they are part of this other group. For purposes of the next question, I think we can maybe lump lump them together. How have you seen people who experience either same-sex attraction or gender discordance find roles in the church where they can make significant contributions? I think it's it's not always easy, right? I mean, these are topics that I think so often are treated as either kind of an us versus them sort of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, people experiencing this are outside of the church um, yeah. and they are doing this, right? they are promoting gender ideology or they are influencing Hollywood or or whatever. It it kind of becomes this culture war type of vibe. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the church with those experiences, like, well, wait a minute, I have nothing to do with Hollywood or any of these ideologies and I'm here, I'm in the pews. There's not always a culture of being able to share that this is part of your story. But I I think in a lot of ways, if, if that's the culture that is created, I think we're really missing out, right? I think what one of the things that I've found through Eden Invitation is those in our community are some of the most just raw, real people, especially with the Lord that I've ever met, right? Because at a pretty young age, right, at this point of conversion, you are confronted with something that's ridiculously life-changing, right? Like that is going to determine how you see your body, how you see yourself as a person that's going to determine your vocational trajectory, potentially. Like you're confronted really quickly with big things. So there's no real possibility of kind of remaining comfortably middle class, isolated from the big questions. You cannot be lukewarm, right? (laughs) It's just not going to work. Unless you just like repress all your stuff and are pretending it's not a big deal and then eventually it'll flare out anyway. So you should probably just deal with it. (laughs) But, you know, you're, you're confronted with it so early. And so people are deep, like people are real, people are prayerful. Um, And I think when you have this type of really committed, striving disciple, it is good that we're here, right? It's good that we're here. It's good that we're here in the church. 
And also too, I think another thing we can do is really witness to creative ways of doing fellowship, right? Of community, also creative ways of giving of yourself, right? All of us is called to spiritual maternity and paternity, uh, no matter where we land in our state of life. And I think we have a lot to give to the church. And I've seen that again through people within the community of Eden Invitation, um, just ways that they're living and loving, whether that's in their daily life, whether that's in a ministerial job, whether that's being a foster parent. There's a lot of different ways I think that people get being artists. And I hope that we can continue to, to see these gifts and acknowledge them and uh, celebrate the people that want to live and love here in the church. People wonder why the church looks the way it does. Why, if God was going to save humanity, why, why would you do it this way and create what by all outward appearances is a, is a human institution? And part of the reason for that is God wants to involve us in the salvation of our brothers and sisters. And so he's going to involve all of us in that uh, as long as we're open to it. And so that includes the people we're talking about, too. Now, you just recently held a series on Eden Invitation called Inheritance, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so in, in the secular space, or just kind of in general, June is seen as uh, it's Pride Month, right? Historically, there's been a lot going on. And so for our community, it, it obviously impacts you, right? You're living in the world and, and you're seeing all of this going on and wanting to process it, right? And, and there are so many questions, right? How much can I participate in this? How much should I be looking at this? Things stir up you know, inside of you. And so we really, uh, in June, we want to provide an opportunity for our community members to have opportunities to talk, to grow, to receive some formation. And so for us this year, the theme was inheritance. So we looked at all these different facets of what we inherit from those who have come before us, right? What are we inheriting from God, right? And our identity as his children, what do we inherit from our families and our communities, our churches, right? both good and bad sometimes, right? As human right. fallen human beings, that's a mixed inheritance. We also looked at the secular LGBTQ space and saying, okay, what is going on over there that we maybe have in common? There's some common things that we care about. There's some common things that we inherit. And then how do we steward all of that? Uh, so we've received this from a lot of different places. Some of it's better than others. How do we steward it? What does that look like? So we offered, I did a weekly blog series on each of those topics. And then we also offered opportunities for people to drop in and have conversations. So each blog had questions for prayer and for discussion. You can still go back and check them out. Uh, and then we offered those opportunities for our community to, and new people too, to process, you know, what, what was going on. Then we also did a talk for broader, even if you're not experiencing these things, if you have a friend or family member, we also offered some opportunities for them as well. Yeah. And ideally outside the pandemic, that would be easier when you're capable of gathering in person a little bit more freely. Actually, we started totally online. We have always been, we've been using Zoom for four years. <laughs> this is a population that's very, to use a secular term, closeted, right? There's, especially within the church, there's a lot of shame. Um, people aren't necessarily very forthcoming about this to other people in their lives, maybe not even to themselves. And it's a lot easier to look up a website online and send an email gotcha. than it is to just show up cold to an event. And so we've always been utilizing the internet in that way and hosted online small groups. And just in the last couple of years have been branching out to in-person retreats and also local chapters, essentially, we call them hearth groups, but local communities. 
So that's actually new for us. And we were trying to launch some of that right during the pandemic. So yes, that didn't all, the timeline shifted, but <laughs> fortunately we had the infrastructure to keep going. How would you like an invitation to impact those who do experience either same-sex attraction or gender discordance? I think hope would be a big one. You know, hope that God has a plan for your life. Hope that what you need and what you long for, like will be met in God and in God's people. And also a joy, I think a, a joyful anticipation of what your life can hold. I think so often our approaches on this stuff is let's have a really robust explanation of the no. Yeah. Like we're going to give you all the philosophy and all the background on why certain things are off limits. The Garden of Eden imagery comes to mind here, right? Like there was obviously a clear command about a tree that was off limits, right? There's no getting around that, right? That's there. <laughs> yeah. That's a reality. Um, but Adam and Eve had the entire garden to steward, to celebrate, you know, to delight in. Yeah, to till and keep. That was the primary charge. It right. Was a positive, exactly. not just command, but a gift. Yeah. And so I think for people to be able to see, you know, no matter where on that LGBTQ spectrum you are, um, that your life is a gift and that you've been given gifts by God to live a rich, full and abundant life. And that I think that we as church can keep doing a better job articulating the yes and what I that yes can look like. Next episode, we will continue with the second half of our interview with Anna Carter. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more, you can find Eden Invitation online at EdenInvitation.com. And we are back one more time to wrap up our discussion of men, women, and the mystery of love. Kara, welcome back. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So we read chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, the revised and expanded edition. If you at home have the original edition, it probably won't have chapters 13 and 14, but hopefully you're working on the same edition as we are because we're using the edition that has the added chapters, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, so in chapter 12, this is where the rubber meets the road in connecting us up with JP2's Theology of the Body Catechesis. This project that uh, Edward Sree has been undertaking in this book has been to kind of sum up and make more digestible JP2's Love and Responsibility, his book which preceded Theology of the Body. Now that we're reaching the end of it, we're kind of at a good point now where if you wanted to, you could continue on and be better disposed to actually get more out of the theology of the body proper, because this is everything that we've done has been kind of a helpful precursor to that. And that's how the book Love and Responsibility is, too. If you try to read some of the theology of the body homilies and you don't get very far, reading Love and Responsibility and reading this book are a big help. So what that means here is that this book ends largely where Theology of the Body begins, which is talking about the spousal nature of the body in connection with the creation narrative in Genesis. So where does all this talk about sentimentality and sensuality and emotional tenderness, where does all that leave us? Well, that leads us directly to human nature as it's originally revealed in Adam and Eve. And in chapter 12, three sort of recaps Genesis 1 and 2, and how the man is originally created alone, which is not good for him. God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And he notes at this point that Adam's not technically alone. There are plenty of animals that Adam is created with, and those are not sufficient. No other created being is sufficient to ameliorate Adam's original solitude, except for Eve. 
the capstone of the original work of creation. And what that reveals about human nature is not just that man is a social being and that it's good to have a companion in life, but it means that the nature of a human being is essentially oriented towards unity with the other. And that's why the human body is so important. When Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, what he's saying is this person is somebody that I can become one with. Because they both have human bodies, both of those human bodies can outwardly express not just a bodily unity, but something even beyond that, which is a unity of souls. That's very illuminating for us in our own concern because we're not just after bodily pleasure, certainly emotional pleasure. Relational maturity is fundamentally ordered to this highest good of human relationships, which is unity of soul, which is why other vocations, consecrated life, priesthood, uh, even single life, are all geared towards that kind of unity of soul with God in one way or another. And here it's geared toward the unity of soul with God through the spouse. Yeah. He talks about that we have a capacity of expressing love that I'm quoting here, that love in which the person becomes a gift and by means of this gift fulfills the meaning of his being and existence. And that's actually a quote from not Sri, but from Theology of the Body, um, which I think is interesting thinking about the reality that we are made for mutual self-giving. We're not made for taking. We're actually made for giving. And I know it's very common, the sort of imagery of the Trinity to be used as a stand-in for the imagery of marriage where, you know, father and son's love is made manifest in the Holy Spirit and their sort of conversation with each other has an outpouring of love that is the Holy Spirit that, that travels to us. And similarly, both the spiritual and physical union of spouses leads to family. But that's one, I think, kind of new addition that comes into play here as more specific to theology of the body than what was discussed in, in Love and Responsibility. And then from there, just to pick up where you were, good bread, the rest of this is about the natural state versus the state after the fall. And so the two big things is that there's original nakedness and original shame and how before the fall, Adam and Eve did not know that they were naked. They saw both themselves and each other as God saw them, and they could fully appreciate the wholeness of the other. And then after original sin, they're no longer able to see each other in the way that God sees them. And so before the fall, they are naked, and afterwards they realize that they must cover themselves. And that's not simply because their eyes were open to their nakedness, but it also re reflects a reality that sin shatters that natural union of man and woman, and therefore there is a natural covering of the preciousness of our sexuality that takes place. And so... That it, it's a, you know, the analogy for us is that before marriage, you know, we, and, you know, even from those who are not our spouse, we keep our sexuality covered in a way. And it's because of the sacrament that we get grace to be able to work towards that more perfect union that Adam and Eve originally experienced where they can see the perfection of the beloved. And obviously it's something we'll never fully achieve here on earth, but that we, you know, through prayer and grace can work towards. 
One thing I liked about this, the way they describe it, which to anybody listening to this is probably nothing new. In the context of this book, you know, we talked a lot about relationships of use and immaturity in relationships that are self-directed. I kind of liked how they framed that introduction of shame here because it, it sort of made me think about the actual original sin. The, the shame here is just an effective original sin, but the actual original sin itself of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil felt to me in this sense the first historical instance of a relationship of use. It was the first time that anybody had looked at a thing with respect to what I want to get out of it versus how can I participate in this beautiful created order and enjoy goodness for its own sake. That's a good point, yeah. When they subject part of God's creation to that relationship of use, suddenly they become aware, I myself can be subjected to use and I am ashamed of that part of me that can be used. So I, I thought that was kind of a neat way of putting it in like kind of a slightly different context. Uh, that doesn't always come out when you just read Genesis straight up. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really good insight. I feel like this chapter to me is like, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like a little sampler of T.O.B. You know, if you yeah. find this interesting, please, you know, pick up the next book in the series. What we've just talked about in Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love and, and Love and Responsibility, what we've just talked about is sort of like The Hobbit and Theology of the Body is Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So with that, we wrap up the extended edition of this book with some applications for people like me who are not married. Um, so there's one chapter for single people and then there's one chapter for engaged people. Um, so we are going to wrap up by talking a little bit about those. Um, so Kara, should we get kicked off by talking about single people? Let's do it. And how they can uh, participate in this, even if they're not actually able to live out the nuptial meaning of the body. Because there's still important remote preparation for marriage that people can undertake and honestly should undertake. Because uh, we, we talked a little bit before in some of our parenting interviews about how the vast majority of people are going to be parents eventually. It's something like like 84% of women and 76% of men or something like that are going to be parents. And yet before they become parents, you don't see 80% of people trying to develop good habits that will make them good parents down the road. They become parents and then they're behind the eight ball and they realize, oh no, I can't be, I can't be living my life in this or that way. Or I want to continue to live my life in this or that way. And the presence of this child simply will not allow me to do so. And this is like a big stress. Yeah. What Chapter 13 is meant to avoid is that mentality for marriage so that when you spend your single days preparing for that, you're better suited or you're better disposed to enter into that relationship, right? Yeah. I think as a former athlete, I appreciated the way that he opens this chapter about, so basically tells a little story where he had invited a former semi-pro soccer player to come help out with the practice of his son's soccer team. And the guy basically says, boys, you'll play how you'll practice. And if you practice well, you'll play well. And I mean, especially when it comes to sports, you cannot underestimate the value of muscle memory and repetition. And I think the same is true. People certainly see it in their spiritual lives. Like if you don't have good prayer habits, when life gets stressful and hard, it doesn't suddenly become easier to pray. It's a lot harder. And so the things that you already have built up as just an ingrained part of who you are make it a lot easier. And you mentioned parenthood. I have a couple of friends in particular who, you know, they're just kind of free-spirited type people. And they're like, wow, parenthood is so hard because kids are not down with like free-spirited lack of structure. Like that just is not the way the kids thrive. And yeah. although I feel like those are the friends who've had the, the hardest time with parenting is I have to not only 
is this a thing that I have not practiced, but like I am truly dying to myself because this is not natural for me. I'm glad you brought up the uh, the practice example because when I read that, I, I it was, that seemed like a very vivid example, and I was just imagining the kids at the start of this this process, like these little ragamuffins all bashing into each other, three different kids trying to kick the ball away from each other uh, in like a you know totally disorganized morass of little six year olds. <laughs> You mean like little little yeah, kids little playing kids soccer? soccer. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and then and then coming out of this coaching session in the most advanced squad, this precise orchestration of athletic perfection, like these kids doing bicycle kicks uh, on on like their fellows. It's, the, it's like the film motif. The film motif with like walking down the like slow mo, and like all of a sudden they're you know got the backwards cap on and they yeah. figured it all out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and that difference, that before and after picture, which you know in a less dramatic way, I guess happened in real life with these uh, these kids and their soccer team. That difference is not something you can will when you're in the tournament, having not practiced, right? Which is what people, when they find themselves married or having a kid, are in the tournament and are willing the the fruits of all that habituation, uh, but haven't actually put in the montage before that. And there's, look, there's a reason these montages are so brief uh, re- related to the amount of time it takes <laughs> to practice, because it's not fun. It's not fun to watch in a movie, and it's probably not fun to watch the kids' soccer practice uh, unfold, and it's it's not fun to, to actually do it yourself. But it is good, because it helps you love better. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that about like, it's not fun. Um, the last point he makes in the chapter is about, em- he calls it embrace the weight. But I think that that's a really, probably like the primary thing to keep in mind. As So I got married when I was 35. So I have done a lot of dating and a lot of waiting. <laughs> and so I think, I think that it's good advice to, it's not just about like, oh, I'm going to do the hard practice while I'm just waiting around for my spouse to show up. But the idea of like embracing the opportunity to be single for like the value of that in and of itself. Um, you know, I'd, I'd hate for somebody to read this and think that it's like almost instrument instrumentalizing or objectifying doing things that need to be done for preparation. Like, oh, well, if I check the box of I'm going to go volunteer and that means that like God will send me my spouse or I'm going to go to therapy and then when I'm done with therapy, God will send me my spouse. You know, I think it's about seeing the value of like if God has put you in a place at a particular point in time and, you know, a place of singleness to really see like what is what is God calling me to do and how is he calling me to build my relationship with him in this very particular time? Because I tell you why, it's a lot easier to find time to do things when you don't have to consider someone else's schedule or you're not like. That is an important point that I think can maybe be misinterpreted, that God will not automatically send you a spouse once you've reached a certain level. You know, you, you don't get to go to the tournament provided you've had five practices or a certain number of practices, right? Like you could practice a lot or a little, the tournament's still going to happen when it happens. Which, in this world, that schedule doesn't get published ahead of time. You kind of got to <laughs> practice, like I am, at 32, in the dark, not knowing when the tournament actually is. So that's the embrace the weight. And sometimes it feels more like the weight is embracing you, whether you want to or not. <laughs> well, what, yeah, 
tell me, Goodred, as the you know resident single person here, how did this chapter feel to you? Felt bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I hope I hope hearing me say this will will help you at home joke about it a little bit more. Or if you're not single, but maybe you have a, a child who is a single adult, um, maybe take it easy on them. My parents have been you know, very easy going with me, not putting too much pressure on me to find someone already. I'm doing enough of that myself, but it's not fun. I thought it was interesting that he said, don't settle, which I think maybe supports the embrace the weight point because this, this is something that I'll tell you in my own, my own personal experience, which I'm hesitant to talk about just because like this podcast is not about me, but I am very cognizant of not settling and even though I don't like the weight, I know that artificially truncating the weight by quote unquote settling for somebody I don't necessarily feel like I want to spend the rest of my life with, but could theoretically convince myself into making it work. That kind of settling is something I'm very skittish about and very unwilling to even consider. So like that don't settle part made total sense for me. I wholeheartedly agree. As somebody who has been single way longer than he wanted to be, I still do not at all believe in settling and don't think that anybody should settle. And I think part of that probably has to do with being the child of divorce. And this is not so much even my own parents' experience. I've just heard instances of these couples who got divorced who openly admit that like on their wedding day they didn't love their spouse or they knew it wasn't going to work out I just that's baffling to me like why would you ever want to do that unless you had some sort of like movie plot where you had to you were going to inherit a great fortune provided you got married by a certain <laughs> date but like barring that I cannot imagine entering into that no. knowing that before you actually got married. Like, that's just as unfair. I mean, I feel like calling off the wedding is less embarrassing and painful than going through the wrench of divorce later. You know what? Okay, so this might be a cultural issue for us. I think it's actually less embarrassing to go through with it and then get divorced later than calling it off on the day. But I, I agree that it is definitely more painful to do that. That's fair. Or yeah. separated. If it's a valid marriage that can't be dissolved, then it's not actually divorce. It's just a separation. But in the eyes of our temporal authority, it's divorce. But in any event, I think we as a culture are more okay with, we as a non-Catholic culture, are more okay with marrying and getting divorced versus calling it off on the wedding day. Yeah. Because I think we care more about that public humiliation angle than we do about the dissolution of a relationship. That's fair. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, the next chapter, chapter 14, is about engaged couples. And a lot of what he addresses in that part, in some ways, like my instinct is actually to say that there should be some kind of stage between dating seriously and actually getting engaged where you're having the very real and tangible conversations. So chapter 14 is talking about here are all the things you guys need to talk about very seriously now that you have said you've gone from the theoretical to the to the concrete. Yeah. Now you're actually going to get married. And the thing I've I've found over the years with friends who've gotten married or, you know, when I was running a magazine and we gave a lot of advice or heard a lot of feedback from people is that, and I think this happens a lot in Catholic circles where people have shorter engagements, you know, culturally, my non-Catholic friends have 18 months 
to two years of being engaged and my Catholic friends take the minimum six months <laughs> that they are required to take. You know, good for us. We're, you know, ready to get on the ball. But the truth is that a lot of those six months can be very consumed by wedding planning. I had my wedding during COVID and it was minimal, like 35 people were at my wedding. Right. You know, it was still very time consuming. And I think a lot of couples ultimately treat pre-cana as like a checkbox and they don't really explore a lot of practical questions that need to be explored before actually getting married. And I think what you're talking about, about that like embarrassment is also true for like people don't want to call off an engagement because it's like, oh, we didn't know what we were getting into, which to my mind is like, well, if that's the way you're going to feel about it, you should really be having some pretty serious conversations before you decide to buy a ring. What's implied here in this chapter, which is necessarily pretty brief, but which, you know, Carrie, you mentioned off mic, there's a lot more writing about this. So you could definitely find books written just about this topic. I think what he's implying here is a stage or a gray area between dating and engagement, where you more or less have an idea that you're going to get engaged, um, that this is less of a hypothetical I mean, it still is technically hypothetical because you're not engaged, you're not married yet, but it's less of a hypothetical. You know, you both have an agreement that barring an unforeseen event or an act of God, you are going to get married. And therefore, those ifs become whens. And the nature of the question of how are we going to raise our kids? How are we going to manage our finances? You know, how do we go about a day together cooped up in the same house? Those cease to be, wouldn't it be nice if... We could do it this way versus what will it be like when we are doing it this way? Yeah. Yeah. So those are important conversations that need to take place. And yeah, I mean, I agree that they should happen if they have that character before you actually get engaged, then they should. I think maybe for some re some people, they need that visceral concrete step to take place before the questions are real enough for them to really consider an answer. Well, it also, I think... If you get engaged and you feel like you know, you're now able to have these questions, what he brings up in the single portion, you mentioned the don't settle. The flip side of that, which he also mentions, is about what to look for. And I know I've both edited, written, and discussed the idea of getting rid of having a checklist for your spouse. And I think he does a good job of reminding people that like, yeah, your checklist should not be, must be six feet tall and handsome or, you know, whatever corollary there are for, for men, for women, but that you're, you're the things you should be looking for and that are important are the virtues, you know, prudence, courage, self-control kindness, generosity. And like, these are things that you don't need to have a discussion about. Like you can see how people live those things out. And if that would make them a suitable spouse, you know, how do they treat their family members? How do they treat their coworkers? You can be sure if they are rude to the waitress, they're going to be rude to you someday. They're not only mean to other people, like suddenly the veil will drop at some point. So I think that's, he does a good job of kind of reminding people that, you know, not settling is, does not mean you should keep holding out for the hottest man or woman that you can find. It means don't settle for somebody who doesn't treat you well or who doesn't align with what you want in life. I have a friend of a friend who he and his wife, they got married kind of young and they're Christian, but not Catholic. And it wasn't until they had been married for several years that he was like, okay, I'm ready for kids now. And she's like, I'm still doing my career thing. <laughs> so I don't know about that. 
it's like, ooh, that is not the time you want to figure out that you have different goals around children. Yeah. You know, three brings up the things that matter. Right. All of these character traits, which a lot of people overlook or think that, I think people think that character traits can change. And the reality is that physical traits are the things that are going to change. Okay, maybe not height, but like their actual physical makeup, like as you get older and like, especially for women, like you have babies and your body changes. Whereas character is something that unless it's being actively worked on constantly is not likely to improve. That's a really good point because the tendency for a lot of people is the thing they want to change is character based. um, And that whole, I can change him tendency, uh, (laughs) which is just a brutal temptation. Yeah. Not to like psychologize it, but you know, I definitely think that there are people where they're trying to heal some other relationship by getting into a relationship with something similar going on. And I mean, I think that Sri isn't explicit about it here, but he talks, he does talk about, you know, taking the time and the embrace the weight to make sure that you have done the work to like be able to find a healthy relationship, which I'm a big proponent for therapy and and spiritual direction and all the things to make sure that you're not trying to solve a problem that is not the other person's problem to solve by being in a relationship. Other than your relationship with God, he can solve a lot. (laughs) And that wraps up our longitudinal study of Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. Kara, thank you for traveling this long way through the book. Thanks for having me. And we will see you next time to talk about When Harry Met Sally. I'm excited. (laughs) if you liked this episode and our discussions of dating just wait (laughs) please share this podcast with your friends leave us a review on itunes and be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts bye now and god love you